Hello and welcome to the Scottish Politics Podcast. My name is David Clegg. I'm the political editor of the Daily Record and your host. You join me on the day that every politician in Scotland looks forward to. It's the Scottish Politician of the Year Awards tonight. Uh, so all the big gongs will be being handed out. People will be in their finest outfits and uh, also probably drinking too much. But we'll maybe discuss how that goes uh, later on. Uh, I am joined today on another interesting Brexit day uh, for British politics by two fantastic guests. I have the leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats, Willie Rennie, and Green MSP, Alison Johnston. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. I thought this week we might start by just talking about a moment of the week or a highlight of the week. Uh, Alison, what, what's caught your eye this week? Um, I suppose as the Green Social Security spokesperson, I was... I was pretty astonished at the language, um, although I very much welcome it, used by the UN Special Rapporteur on Poverty. Um, An absolutely damning report and description of the impact the UK government's welfare reforms have had on some of the most vulnerable people in the country. Um, Making the point really that these were political choices, uh, using language like mean, punitive, you know, entirely unnecessary. It was was a starker... Uh, condemnation of a UK government policy, as I could remember from an organisation like that. I think it said it was inflicting misery. Yeah, he he couldn't have been clearer. And, you know, the the UK government have been told time and time again that these policies are really gendered, that 86% of the cuts um, have impacted strongly on women. And he said this. He said these are misogynistic policies. You know, he I'm sort of paraphrasing slightly, but he was basically saying if you'd you know, put a group of misogynists into a room and said, do your worst with welfare reform, <laughs> it's been achieved. That is a slight paraphrase, <laughs> well, I have to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. But the, the Tory response was pretty uh, robust, wasn't it? They've, they've, not, they've not accepted any of the findings. No, and, you know, they are in denial on this policy. They're in absolute denial. You know, I think the aims of universal credit were sound, simplify a complex system, make work pay, but the evidence that we're all you know, receiving in our inbox day and daily suggests that it's not like that. There are winners and losers. It's grand for the people who win, but there are far too many losers. Willie Rennie, what, what, what about you? What's caught your eye this I mean, week? I think it was a pretty sobering report. Um, and what's interesting, I found, certainly from our years in, in the coalition, was that the Conservatives really couldn't do enough on welfare, as far as they're concerned. Their supporters wanted to cut it even deeper is what we discovered. And whenever you presented these really challenging cases, including on the bedroom tax, because I did quite a lot of work on the bedroom tax to try and mitigate it, they didn't care. This was an inconvenience. Um, The fact that I kept talking about it was an irritant. So I I think the reaction from them probably isn't too surprising. Um, The chaos of Brexit this week um, is probably continues to be the moment and probably the most important aspect of it is how Theresa May just keeps on marching on. And it is quite eerie that she keeps on going despite all the chaos around her. Now, I don't know whether it's going to be enough to get it through, but it's, you have to admire her for sticking at it. Well, we'll talk about Brexit plenty in a few moments. Just on the welfare thing, something just struck me there. Do you... What, what do you, whenever you look back at that time with the Lib Dems in government, I, I remember, you can maybe tell this story now that you couldn't have told previously, I remember in particular our Scottish Lib Dem conference where I think you came out against the bedroom tax and it was a story at the time and Nick Clegg was with you and I'm not sure he had been <laughs> fully briefed to, to, what you, to what you were planning. Well, actually it was an interview with 
Brian Taylor on the BBC. It was that that kind of podcast web webcast thing that he did, and he asked me about the bedroom tax, and actually I just couldn't be bothered defending it anymore. So I just said, in the spur of a moment, with all my advisors looking on, said, "Yeah, it's got to go." And <laughs> you could see their jaws dropping. And the next meeting I had was with Nick Clegg. And I said, uh, I better tell you something. Uh, I've just said the bedroom tax should go. And he, he kind of looked again with a drop jaw <laughs> and was actually, you know, questioning whether it would be wise to raise it in the middle of our conference. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people were quite pleased that we had just spoken out and told it as it was because it was time for it to go. I remember meeting a group of housing officers in Fife, and this is what killed it for me was that people who were affected by the bedroom tax had effectively just given up. They weren't bothering to pay their rent anymore. They were almost just opting out of society. And when it gets to that stage, kind of like the poll tax, when it gets to that stage, you know the game's up. There's no point in defending it anymore. So for me, that was the point I had to go. Yeah, actually, that just just on that point, that is the, I think, one and only political march my mum has been on. You know, she felt so incensed. Someone who's engaged in politics, but, you know, isn't is active for, for one reason or another, actually came on that march. She was so incensed by, on, on which by march that policy. Is that, sorry. It was an anti bedroom tax. Yeah. Okay. Came, you know, down the Royal Mile, passed outside your window. Okay, well, we, we'll, we'll maybe talk a bit more about uh, welfare later on. I'll, let's start with First Minister's Questions, which was uh, just about an hour ago. We're in the Daily Record Scottish Parliament office, and it's just coming up to 2pm. Uh, let's start with the Tories, because uh, as we've got you here, Willie, as a leader, someone who's you've done First Minister's Questions for, for years now for the, for the Liberal Democrats, uh, Jackson Carlow is obviously in this slightly difficult and unusual position that he's covering maternity leave for Ruth Davidson. How have you found him at First Minister's Questions and what did you think of his, his, I, I, his I topic mean, today? I think he's generally been quite spiky. You know, he's been pretty responsive. When Nicholas says something, he comes back quite quickly with a retort. Whether those are planned or not, I'm not sure, but, but he's pretty spiky. Last week, it was unavoidable. He had to do Brexit and he was really uncomfortable. But he did come out fighting. This week you had an excuse. There's probably the calamity of last week um, isn't close as close to this week's question. So he went on flu jabs. Um, obviously going on a mainstream issue. You know they spent quite a lot of time talking about GPs at other times as well. So they're trying to appeal to middle ground within Scottish politics. I'm not sure it was particularly effective because I think it was more managerial than it was policy based. Yeah. But Nevertheless, it's not going to get you on TV that topic today. I wouldn't have thought. No, I mean some people are affected by it, and I'm getting a few complaints. It's certainly an awful lot of people are having to wait in long queues at the GP surgeries to get the flu jabs. But it's not, you know, in, in the time when we're going through one of our most cataclysmic periods in international relations, to talk about flu jabs isn't probably the right issue to do. What do you make of it, Alison? I don't know. I don't know if he is trying to suggest that they do actually have an eye on the day job. Yeah. You know, that they're looking after their constituents' health, that they're not entirely caught up in this chaos of their own making. Yeah. So maybe a bit of that. Um, yeah, I think he's thought, let's just go with health. He has a you know, long hinterland in that as a portfolio area, so maybe yeah. feels comfortable on it. I mean, he does use humour sometimes when he's able to, yeah. to Jackson, but it wasn't, a, a, you know, wasn't the day for that today. Uh, your party leader or co-convener, Patrick Harvey, went on uh, an issue that was quite similar to Richard Leonard, the Labour Party leader. This was about the uh, teacher's pay offer, the fact that they 
there was a ballot this week and it unanimously or almost unanimously rejected the offer uh, and that there's talk of uh, strike action. Uh, this is obviously an issue that's been very much in the news uh, the last couple of days and it will obviously affect a lot of people. Mm-hmm. What did you make of Nicola Sturgeon's response to what Patrick Harvey was asking her today about that? Um, I'm sure the First Minister will be doing everything she can to avoid strike action. There is a lot of hard work to be done here, though. You know, this hasn't just sprung out of nowhere. There's been dissatisfaction um, over years. We're 3,500 teachers down compared to where we were when the SNP came into power in 2007. That is a lot of teachers. You know, we have a, a mainstreaming policy which isn't being properly supported by the additional support staff. You know, additional support needs teachers that, that should be in classrooms. We have a really stressed workforce whose, you know, morale is being impacted day and daily. A lot of people, when they can retire, are retiring, whereas in the past they might have thought, do you know what, I feel really valued. I'm making a huge difference here and I want to carry on. So, yeah, there's clearly a lot of work to be done around that negotiating table. The the unions are asking for a 10% pay rise for teachers uh, and the original government offer was a, was a long way from that, although they say with other changes it could bring it up slightly closer towards it. That's disputed by the unions. But I think I think you could tell from Nicola Sturgeon's demeanour and attitude that she did re- does realise that there's going to have to be a new offer and it's going to have to be a better offer. But she was also very clear that 10% was not affordable. She basically said there's not enough money for a 10% pay rise. So where, where would you like to see it go next? Well, you know, the this figure suggests that teachers have lost far more than 10% over, you know, the last decade. Um, you know, their pay has just stood still. I was speaking to a teacher earlier this morning who's very much in that boat, hasn't had a pay rise in a decade, um, is really struggling and you know, isn't supported by the number of colleagues that that should be there in support. So I think they're going to have to really work hard to get as close to that as they possibly can. I mean, this is, it is about political will after all. The SNP have said that education is a priority. Um, So, you know, there's, there's a lot of work still to be done. Willie, what would you have gone on? The Liberal Democrats didn't have a question today. If you had a question, what would you have been asking about? I mean, this might have been the question because we are deeply concerned about the recruitment crisis within education. I mean, a lot of the schools in my constituency are struggling to fill, particularly on maths and some of the sciences. They're having a great difficulty. So we're going to have to do something. Um, Ian Gray's question, I thought, was right on the mark. Mm -hmm. I mean, he put it into context. He compared the last time that the teachers were this angry was when Margaret Thatcher was in power. And he then compared, he said, that's when Nicola was at school. He said, when I was a teacher, he said, Ian Gray... And also when many of the teachers now who are teaching weren't even born. That's how significant this moment is. It's have 98% of teachers speaking out. So they're going to have to do something. It depends on how much money there is available. And we'll see quite soon, hopefully, how much the Scottish Fiscal Commission says is available. And that will partly dictate. Another part of the issue is that the... The public sector pay arrangements are all kind of interlocked. Local government have tied in their the rest of their public sector workers in with teachers' uh, pay deals as well. So there perhaps perhaps are knock-on effects financially for the rest of the public sector pay deals. So we're going to have to consider all of this incredibly carefully. But there is no doubt it's going to have to be more than is there just now. And we are right behind the teachers on that. We think there should be a Macron too. 
we think there should be a review again, just like there was back in the Lib Lab um, coalition back in the 2000s, because we think the education system is really creaking just now, and we do need to respect and value our teachers more than we currently are. Yeah. The Liberal Democrats and the Greens are, I guess, generally considered the parties most likely to strike a budget deal with the Finance Secretary, Derek Mackay, so we can get his budget through. We'll just sort it out now, yeah. Alison. Yeah, the, the, I like to use yeah, this podcast for public budget <laughs> negotiations. <laughs> uh, Alison, what's the, what's the Greens' uh, red line on this, do we know? Well, you know, we have said we want to see meaningful progress on reform of local taxation. Um, we haven't seen it yet. Um, debates that have taken place over the last few weeks, there's even timidity around allowing, you know, Edinburgh Council a huge draw during the summer season to, to implement a, a tourist tax. And the Edinburgh Chamber of Commerce, I think this morning, has published a, a report suggesting that 69% of businesses polled, including those in the hospitality sector, are in favour of such a tax. So the government is dragging its heels. I mean, I was a local councillor in Edinburgh for five years before I came into Parliament, even then, you know, we were saying we need this. We need this ability to raise taxes for what we need them for. Local councillors on the ground, you know, whether it's Edinburgh, Lothian or Fife, know what's needed in their region. They should have more freedom to raise money. Um, so we want to see meaningful progress in that regard. We haven't seen it yet. You know, it's the government's budget to get through. They need to work with other parties. What, what position the Liberal Democrats discussions with the government at? I mean... I, mean, I can't tell you all the details, um, but we've made it clear that um, independence needs to be off the table for the rest of this parliament. Um, and it depends how difficult the Greens get, I suppose, in the budget negotiations as to whether that's something that they can they can play with in the Scottish government. It seems unlikely that they could yeah, they could do that, yeah, doesn't it? But you know, let's see, let's see how desperate they get. Um, but we are. It would have to be pretty desperate, I suspect. <laughs> well, let, let's see. Um, so I mean, we've made that clear as a almost a precondition. But our priorities are around teachers' pay, about funding for education, mental health services, which we've been very strongly advocating for some time, and we want to see expenditure go up in that area. Um, but there all needs, also needs to be a decent deal for local government so they can fund vital local services. So those are our kind of priority issues and. You know, I'm sure there can be some common ground with the SNP on those issues. Um, if only they would put aside perhaps the independence issue for a wee bit, we could maybe do some kind of arrangement. Maybe come back onto that when we get into Brexit. Uh, just while we're while we're still on the budget uh, issue, where do you think uh, Derek Mackay is heading with this? Do you think that he has some? This Nicola Sturgeon today was making the case very much that their hands are tied in some way because of the settlement from Westminster that they're not getting enough money. We're hearing lots of demands, uh, although there is some some suggestions of potential areas for tax rises and stuff there. Do you are you, are you hoping to see him put up tax and spend more effectively? I mean, for for the Liberal Democrats, we think we made the progressive changes in in the recent budgets. Um, which we think now need to be bedded in before we make further changes. We need to keep the confidence of the Scottish people that we're not just going to ramp up tax all over the place. It should be a bit about moderation, making sure the, the balance between public expenditure and the money in people's pockets needs to be right. And we supported the tax cuts before, sorry, tax increases before. We think a period of stability would be sensible over the, the coming, at least this year. Um, so that should be the priority. I think the big 
So the big debate will be around about the higher rate tax threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the basic rate and so on, I don't think there will be a discussion too much uh, about that. And perhaps so you'll you'll have be happy at the rates being frozen where they are now. Well, we're not. I mean, not, we've not set out the precise mm-hmm. mechanism, but we think a period of stability um, would be a sensible thing to allow the tax changes to bed in to provide the evidence that you can actually do progressive tax changes, bring in more income for the public services, but also make sure you don't scare away investors and entrepreneurs. Because the changes that Philip Hammond has made at a, at a UK level means there would actually be more money. Uh, for the Scottish budget if things did just yeah, the way stay the, fi- the same. The way the fiscal framework works is bizarre. We get money for doing nothing, um, which is, a I don't know quite who agreed that arrangement, but it's not bad for Scotland. Um, so I think, um, so that will be, there'll be part of a discussion um, around about the higher rate tax threshold. And we'll need to see whether the Scottish Fiscal Commission are as gloomy as, as they were in their last set of predictions or whether they're a bit more confident about the economic future. So all of that will set the context for which we can make decisions about how much we can spend, but the areas of mental health, education, those are the kind of priorities alongside local government and teachers' pay. But so much of mental health and education you know, is delivered by local government, yeah. and I think that's why it's really key that they have the ability to to raise more cash, you know, and it's not just about a tourist tax, there are all sorts of different things. You're looking at local government ways of raising money there. Well, well what about the income tax issue? What, what's, what's the Greens' thoughts on what should happen with that? I think I'm fairly open-minded. I think we need to look at the budget year on year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I think you always make these suggestions on the basis of evidence, and a lot of this is political will. I get, you know, people are always surprised, and, and but, I, you know, you probably do too, get emails from people who are saying, I'd actually love to pay more because I really value education, the health service, please tax me more. Now, there'll be people listening to this who are saying, she must be joking, but there are obviously people who can afford it. And, yeah. you know, it was the Greens budget suggestions that brought in the, you know, the novel notion that actually we should reduce taxation burden on, you know, vary the bans. Let it, let's not assume it's always about, you know, if you can afford more, pay more. Absolutely agree with that wholeheartedly. But there are some people that shouldn't be impacted in the same way by just a, an overall increase. Well, the budget is on December 12th and no doubt we'll be talking about it more as uh, the days and weeks pass. We'll now move on to that issue that you can't possibly do a politics podcast on without discussing, which is Brexit. I can see the happy faces of my two <laughs> guests as I, as I mentioned that. Um, where are we with this today? It's uh, fiendishly complicated and getting more complicated, but we have now seen the draft political declaration, uh, which sets out the uh, idea of how a future relationship between the UK and the European Union would work, although there is a lot still to be negotiated. It is not a particularly long document and it is not full of much detail. It has, of course, though, still managed to enrage plenty of people uh, and Theresa May looks like she may have some more political headaches trying to square off her party as well as everybody else. Let's, from the Scottish perspective, and we'll, we'll go there because it's what was a reference in First Minister's questions, uh, we were talking about the 
implications it has on the Scottish fishing industry. Uh, and Nicola Sturgeon, as you would expect, I suppose, was suggesting that the fishermen were being sold out by the Conservatives Party. She in fact said that the Scottish Secretary David Mundell should resign by the end of the day if he has uh, any, if he has a shred of dignity or credibility. There's a couple of things about this. So I guess we'll talk about what, what the, the, this does mean for fishing, but also I always find it quite odd that the fishing industry seems to have disproportionate influence on the Scottish political dynamic. I understand that it's a very important industry, but it does seem to be the industry that the only industry that we seem to talk to when it comes to Brexit in Scotland, when almost every industry is going to be affected. Willie Rennie, what 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 are you thinking about this in general? I mean, it is one of those iconic industries, isn't it? That you know, it's part of kind of our soul, I suppose, in Scotland. Um, but what's clear is that all those promises that were made in the referendum in 2016 are not really coming to fruition. We were told that we would have control of our fishing grounds, and what the declaration says is that we're not we're going to scrap the CFP, but create a new CFP for the future in return for access to their markets to sell our fishing products. So that's, I think, a clear um, failure by the Scottish Conservatives to argue their case. They, is they it, said is to, it more a failure for the Scottish Conservatives not to level with fishermen and explain the reality of the situation? Because they were never going to be able to just have it 100% their own way in a negotiation, I suppose. No, it's not what they said before. They said that this was one of the most important and, in fact, a red line for them alongside Northern Ireland. And they were, you know, they won a lot of seats as a result of those campaigns that they ran. And they stood beating their chest, demanding that Theresa May don't sell the fishermen down the river. And now they're selling the fishermen down the river. I think that's pretty clear. And I think Nicola was quite actually modest in her demands. I think um, David Mandel should be pretty embarrassed by what's happened over the last couple of weeks. They have been ignored. They have been sidelined. The, the red lines on Northern Ireland and fishing have been ignored. And actually, I think they look pretty much like pygmies in comparison with what they've claimed to be in the past. Alison? Yeah, I mean, I think are many people, you know, reassured by any of the Conservatives' proclamations now? I mean, how far are they away from delivering the Brexit, the multicoloured Brexit they've offered to their supporters on both sides of, of this debate? Um, I think it's pretty hard for anybody. <laughs> now I sound as if I'm defending them. But please be assured, I'm certainly not. I mean, it, it's this been, would be quite a declaration it, to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's like a, it's, there's there's been a bit of a bidding war, hasn't there, for the fishermen's vote between the SNP and the Conservatives? It's pretty difficult though for the Conservatives to square. You know, you want access to EU sea fish markets. Yeah. But you're going to defend your little corner, you know, to the hill. I don't see how those two things are reconcilable. Yeah. And here we are. We don't have a common fisheries policy, but we're going to have a common fisheries policy with a new name. Um, I'd be pretty hacked off if I'd voted Conservative for, for this outcome. But, but doesn't it show the value of the European Union? We've spent, or some in this country, we've spent the last 40 years trying to pull out of Europe, trying to dismantle Europe. And now we've spent the last two years rediscovering the value of having some kind of European framework and institution. Mm -hmm. So we tried to recreate it. So we're kind of leaving Europe, but we're not leaving Europe. We'll have absolutely no say about what they do in the future, 
but we'll have to live by their rules. We were promised we'd have £350 million a week. Wouldn't that solve our budget problems that we were discussing earlier on? Mm -hmm. But we're not going to get that. Fishing, Northern Ireland, they were told it wasn't going to be affected. All of those things. The only thing that Theresa May has come away with is a different immigration policy. That's the freedom of movement has gone. That's pretty clear. But the damage that will cause, I mean, will be outstanding. I mean, in my area, I've got the tourist industry, I've got the fruit and veg sector, I've got the processing sector, mm. I've also got the health service. They're all dependent on foreign workers. And Theresa May is saying, we don't want you anymore. It's astonishing self-harm. And so therefore, the only thing she's managing to get is going to cause us economic damage. All the rest of it has just been a game to try and convince people she's getting something out of Europe when she's not. Yep. Um, Alison, what do you think is the route forward then? What would you like to see happen next? Well, they haven't got their withdrawal agreement agreed yet, do they, in, in the House of Commons? I mean, I really do despair of this whole process, um, and so do those I represent in Lothian. You know, Edinburgh voted, like it was 84% remain. You know, there's there's no one that I'm speaking to who who is in any way convinced that this is good. And I'm pretty difficult for a Prime Minister who apparently voted Remain to, to be standing up and talking about what's good for the country. I mean, from, you know, I cover health for the Greens and got huge concerns about the nursing workforce, um, the social care workforce, child care. Um, you know, Willie's spoken about fruit, farming. So the way forward... Well, I'd like us to remain, to be honest. And so you th- what's the mechanism for doing that? A second EU referendum? or? Well, I mean, I think a second EU referendum may become inevitable if we don't agree the withdrawal mm. agreement. You know, and at the moment, I think Theresa May is finding it incredibly difficult to get support for that. It's not a popular agreement. You've probably been Scotland's foremost proponent of the People's Vote, uh, Willie. Explain to us how you could foresee it happening now? What process would need to happen? Well, I, mean, I, I mean, I've been quite critical of the Conservatives, but I want to help them. Um, I'm a constructive individual who's prepared to come forward with a, a reasonable solution to help them out of the logjam at Westminster. They can't agree amongst themselves, so the best way of doing it is to have a people's vote. Um, I think if we have an amendment um, to the meaningful vote that we've got in Parliament in December, then that could have a people's vote proposal attached to it. And then we can see whether the British people think that Theresa May's deal is good enough or not. And that would be the way to see it through. If and MPs what, what option are you putting to the people? The deal versus remaining? Yes. That not, should, no deal is not an well, option. Well, no deal is, is not really a proposal, is it? We, you've got, you know what? That was the problem with the last referendum. We had no white paper. We had no detail. We know what the European Union looks like. We know what Theresa May's deal looks like. So let's pitch them against each other and see what the British people want. That's the best way out of this. It's the best way to break the logjam and it's the best way to put power back in the hands of the people. Theresa May's government has shown itself incapable of managing this process. It's been chaotic from the beginning and it doesn't look like they're going to get an agreement in the Commons either. So this is the way to sort it. If there was a Brexiteer sitting here, they would say that you're just trying to cancel democracy and that it's... How can it be cancelling democracy for putting it back to the people? And people voted, yes, sorry, Willie, you know, without a white paper. There was no information whatsoever. We now know, you know, there have been police investigations, there's been an electoral commission investigation, you know, there have been a lot of very serious allegations that are being investigated. This hasn't been a fair process in any way, shape or form. I mean, I think, I think for something so major, David, to, to just be absolutely sure that the British people 
want this, now that they've seen the detail, which nobody saw back in 2016, you know, on either side of the argument. So therefore, if we now that we've seen the detail, now we know what it looks like, surely the British people, for something so important, should have that final say. To deny them that opportunity, I think, might be something that even Brexiteers regret. Because there will be challenges, I mean, huge challenges, if they go ahead with this. It'd be better if they had the British people behind them before they um, move on to that territory. And how likely do you think it is? I think it's be- it's higher now. If it was tomorrow, probably wouldn't get it. But I think give it a few more weeks of the kind of disagreement we've got in the House of Commons, they might be quite keen to grab it. I've noticed that Amber Rudd and some of the other cabinet ministers are now talking openly about it. I don't know whether that's to scare their Brexiteers mm. or whether it's now a serious proposition. But I think it should be a serious proposition because I think it's the best way of securing the way forward in a democratic way. Alison, Willie's saying that there should be a second EU referendum. Would you rather solve this problem with a second independence referendum? Well, I think it's fair to say that would be my preference. Um, But, you know, we're supportive of the people's vote. I think there should be lessons learned, though, from this whole sorry process. And I don't think you should ever be taking decisions like this without a comprehensive white paper. Patrick Harvey last week at First Minister's Questions was pushing Nicola Sturgeon quite uh, robustly on uh, trying to force her hand into holding a second one. I almost got the impression that he thinks she's being a bit slow about it. Is that your feeling? Um, I think we just want to make it clear that we are very keen to remain in the EU as an independent nation um, while the UK government continue to you know, drag us through this Brexit omni-shambles mm. and there's not a lot of positive activity happening. You know, we are making clear to our members that you know, we see Scotland as an independent nation within an EU, playing a full part. Well, well, it's difficult for you to argue against the second independence referendum now, given that you're such a vocal proponent of a second EU no, it's, referendum. it's very easy to argue against it. Just you like the result of one <laughs> and not the other. I, it's very easy to argue, because the lessons from Brexit should be the lessons for independence. If we think breaking up a 40-year-old union is hard, and it has been but that, hard... But that's an argument about independence, not no, about the legitimacy no, of another not, referendum. It's an argument not to go there, because the chaos that would ensue would be enormous. So therefore, what, and I'm getting people now on the doors, and I've not had this before, where people are saying, well, I was in favour of independence, but I've seen all this change that comes with Brexit, and I'm really not sure whether I want to go down the independence route. There isn't an appetite for another independent Would referendum. Would you say that that's more common than people who voted no? You think that the Brexit think shambles it's the is... First, it's the first movement I've seen for a wee while. I think there is clearly people thinking, if this is what it takes for a, the European Union to break up, what will it take for the United Kingdom Union to break up? And they're thinking again. I mean, it is important that we actually do recognise the difference between the 2016 referendum and the independent please referendum. Please do, please we do. Because we had... The white paper that Alison was talking about. People knew what they were voting for when they rejected it. That's the big difference. We didn't have a white paper. You're not a fan of the white paper. At all I think it was it was long. Um, it had but an it awful was lot of detail, and, and it was compre- It was a bit tedious and repetitive, but nevertheless, it was there. Well, it was people a white knew. Paper. It existed. People knew. People knew what they were voting for when they rejected yeah, I would it. Just we didn't have that in 2016. Conversely, I'm hearing from people who previously voted no who were saying, you know, now that I've seen what's happened, because we don't have a voice, we're being ignored um, entirely in this... I mean, Scotland has been absolutely ignored throughout this whole process. 
and so I think for as many people as as Willie's no, coming more across who say no, knock on more doors um, I, 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 I'm sure you don't. Um, Maybe yeah, different doors. Yeah, yeah I, I, I've got a lot of high density tenements in my region, Willie. Um, but there's a lot of, of support from people who previously would not have contemplated voting yes. They're ready. There is a there does seem to me a, be a point there, Willie, that if there's if you're calling for a people's vote and it doesn't happen, mm. that the other UK level it doesn't go ahead. For you the, to then turn around and say that there shouldn't be a second referendum on independence, are you not? Are you no, not thinking no, there's a slight no, logical gonna, error there? No, I'm not going to compound the chaos of Brexit with the chaos of independence. That's the last thing I'm going to do. I'm going to learn all the lessons from this process over the last two years. Actually, the arguments the that Nicola, of independence. The, the, the arguments that Nicola makes about unions, about the European Union in this context, equally applies to the United Kingdom Union. And she's contradictory in what she says. She should recognise that working together with your neighbours is a good thing. But that not doesn't separation. happen within the UK. You know, we are ignored time after time after time. And I, I think this is I probably I don't see the, I don't the clearest indication yet. No. I'm, not, I'm not into that grievance approach. Well, I think it, it's not grievance. It's not yeah. grievance. It's just sometimes there is a time for change. You know, I, I, like, I would like, love... Like Brexit. If the UK was working, would we be having this debate? I don't think so, but it isn't. I think whether the UK are working was not, or not, Nicola would say it's time for independence. Last week, in fact, in the chamber to me, she made an outstanding declaration. She said, well, if we go ahead with Brexit, that's a case for independence. And if Brexit doesn't go ahead, that's the case for independence. So no matter what happens, there's always a case for independence with Nicola. I think and when you're looking just at something obsession. as damaging as Brexit, though, you've said it yourself, we're oh, not yes. going to have enough social care workers um, who are absolutely essential to any sort of prosperous, dignified future for people in Scotland. We're going to struggle to attract the nurses we need. You know, agencies well, in worse? Spain now who, who previously would have a long list of people wanting to come here to work and train, they have none. Well, you know, what, really, what? they're talking about going from, from 90% to zero. But, I mean, for me... I wouldn't make it worse by having it. I, I respect your view. I understand that you think it's the solution. I think it would compound the problem. And I think actually working within the United Kingdom to reform it, to have decentralisation, is the much better way of working it. I'm going to have to cut you off there because I, I don't think we're going to resolve this issue. No, we are. Uh, keep going. We will. We will. No, I'm confident. Uh, and also, we've, we've, got the, we've got the award ceremony to go to. Oh, yes. As, as I mentioned at the start, it's the Scottish Politician of the Year Awards tonight. Uh, the people up for the main award, the, the Politician of the Year, uh, is the Health Secretary, Jean Freeman, who's largely nominated for her work in her previous role uh, in Social Security, I think. Uh, Ruth Davidson, the Scottish Conservative leader, and Mike Russell, the Brexit Secretary. So we'll just finish with some predictions from the two guests. Alison, who do you think will win from that selection? Well, I do think Mike Russell is doing a commendable job. Um, however, Social Security is one of my briefs, so I worked with Jean Freeman getting that Social Security bill uh, to stage three, and um, she was incredibly good to work with door was always open constructive engaged um so i'm going to i'm going to go with Jean. well God, you spend long enough you can hunt for some agreement i yeah, absolutely indeed. agree with what alison said i found Jean really good to work with um, she's been very open and frank she gets things done you know i think she's a pretty good minister um, and I won't have that quoted against me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there we go. We, 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 we end on a note of consensus, which is always good. Uh, I'd just like to thank my two guests, Willie Rennie and Alison Johnson, for taking part. And we'll be back next week. Thanks very much. <laughs>